Steve, thank you very much for coming on the show and welcome to the cage. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Um, I'd like to start with your, your earliest memories, uh, camping in the Redwoods. What was that like for a, a young man growing up in such an environment? Oh, it was uh, it was awesome. You know, it's just as, as soon as we got to the campground, we just uh, jump out of the truck and take off into the woods, down to the river, you know, searching for Helgamites and bugs and things and or taking a fishing pole so yeah it was it was wonderful I mean I grew up in a rural essentially on the edge of town the sort of rural area uh, but uh, getting out into the redwoods and stuff was always special and uh, when I was younger much younger much younger <laughs> I used to climb climb the redwood trees I get up on the bark is real thick and you can sort of hand grab it and climb up the bark a ways and I'd always, you know, the, the, the branches weren't for like 100 feet up. And so I'd get like 30, 40 feet up and be looking around going, I need to come down, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was always a great time, family. And uh, back then, I don't know if they still do it, but the rangers, the forest rangers and stuff made sure you had a good time in the evening and things like that. So, Excellent. Sounds like a good childhood. Um graduated high school in 72 and joined the army in 73 what was your motivation behind going straight into the army at that age yeah I was one of those kids you know where my a lot of my friends were going to the local uh college it wasn't a university then a college and uh I was just like oh, I think I've had enough school I'd like to see the world my dad and my uh uncle his brother had been in not only the navy but the merchant marines and I had a lot of merchant marine and Navy family, just about everybody actually. And so all these stories of faraway places and, you know, uh, the Far East, especially in this Pacific, you know, being in California and stuff like that. And so I wanted to see the world, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't exactly get seasick in a canoe, but I knew that a little destroyer or something like that was not going to be not going to be my thing. You know, being cooped up in a submarine, probably not my thing. So I went around to all the recruiters and uh, uh, the army was still at the end of Vietnam, still the place where you could go get decent training and, and get promoted. Uh, you know, I was a little mercenary at the time. It's like, OK, how fast can I make it to, to sergeant, you know, kind of idea. So. Yeah, that was the genesis of that. Um, it's nine months of training as a radio operator. You uh, were assigned to White House Communications. And I find that fascinating that after less than a year, you went straight to the White House Communications. How did that come about? Yeah, so um, when I was in basic training, you know, if they think you've got a little bit of ability or something, they put you through all these tests and like I was one point short of going, being uh, qualified for language school. And I was a few 
credit short of maybe going to OCS, you know, just, just below the line and all kinds of interesting stuff. And these guys in uh, suits and what I would call hair, like I've got now, you know, touching my ears, showed up and uh, they took the whole training company to the theater and, and made us sit through this uh, little spiel these guys gave. And they talked about uh, being based in D.C. and traveling the world and uh, doing communications and things like that. And I was scheduled to go to Fort Lewis and, and be part of the uh, well, get a chance at being a ranger at the Ranger Battalion of Fort Lewis, Washington State. And uh, I thought, well, this is interesting. Travel the world. Just what I was looking for and kept raising my hand and uh got selected, you know, after an interview process and uh, put into a different pipeline where uh, actually I learned how to repair radios, but then also uh, was expected to know how to operate them. And uh, so after that training, which is sort of weird, my first base after going to training after basic training was actually the artillery school in the middle of Oklahoma. And I'm like, what are we doing here? But that was the first you know, radio school, basic radio school, then the advanced schooling in Fort Gordon, Georgia, and on up. So I, I was just sort of a lucky, like straight from contract right into, um, you know, a premier unit. Um, so I consider myself lucky. I worked for it, but, you know, bit a bit of luck for, for paying attention that day in the theater. So how did you feel when you first found out you were doing the White House communications? How did that make you feel? Um, I remember it, I got a little nervous in the middle of training because they really didn't give us a lot of info. And I'm like, I hope I can't march straight. So I hope they not put me, you know, with the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I'll do my best. But, you know, I'm pretty I'm not that coordinated. And uh, uh, I think uh, I think you have a term, right? Gabsmacked or gobsmacked, right? Gobsmacked. And, yeah, 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 and exactly. When I got there and realized where I was at in um, at this covert facility in Georgetown, Maryland, right out Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, on along the Potomac, uh, in civilian clothes, long hair, um, yeah, it was. I was I was surprised, amazed, and and uh, really uh, happy to be there. It was it was a very interesting time. I I ended up getting there two weeks before Nixon resigned. So that's how old I am. <laughs> and, so you uh, weren't there for Watergate then? I, no, well, uh, my sponsor, when we drove into DC, he said, do you see that building? You know what that is? And I said, is that the Watergate? And he's like, yeah, don't go there. The <laughs> <laughs> Watergate and all the investigation is like, yep. don't eat at that Howard Johnson's restaurant right there. That's, that's where they did some of their planning before the break-in. So. Yeah, it was sort of like, keep your head down and do your job. Don't go to the Watergate. So yeah, it was crazy. Um, so you, you managed to, to travel the world uh, with the advanced team setting up communications. What sort of pressure did you feel uh, knowing that you were part of the security team for the president of the United States, the vice president and the rest of their team? I don't remember feeling pressure. I remember feeling pride. And then uh, I love solving problems. And, you know, whether it's technical or it's an op plan or 
whatever it might be later on when I, you know, got into special forces. But um, so I always loved a challenge like that. And, and it was, uh, once again, it was fun. And this is back in the days of straight up old radio. We didn't even have any encryption on our radios back then. Uh, wow. We used, uh, we used a Motorola gear. We had some RCA gear like on the presidential aircraft, but um, yeah, it was, and uh, we even had these little mobile um, switchboards, which were um, not as wide as you can spread your arms and uh, with cords and stuff like that. And so it was, you know, there was no computers and uh, even uh, the first uh, um uh, copy machine, things like that, that were classified or could do classified materials were huge. I mean, it takes six of us to get us off the back of the U-Haul, you know, six, six of us to carry some of, some of that kit was so large back in those days. But it was, once again, it was the, the challenge and the excitement of being there. And then the day of you're in your, you're in your best suit, which what in my case was from, uh, uh, you know, uh, pretty low budget, <laughs> low budget supplier of a suit, but I have my Ray-Bans on, right? So, you know, you know, it didn't matter if it's raining or not, you got to have your Ray-Bans on and uh, it'd be, you know, be co super cool. So uh, it was, it was a lot of fun in that sense. Did you um, travel privately or did you ever get to go on Air Force One with the team? Yeah. So uh, being in advance, we often took commercial air, it was funny. We were supposed to always use a U.S. carrier, so we flew Pan Am back in the day a lot. Um, we did sneak off to Australia one time. I did on on uh, Qantas. It got yelled at a little bit, but you know, get forgiveness kind of idea, right? Uh, and uh, so most of the time that way. Um, uh, back in the day, we had the C one forty one Starlifter. I believe it was called pre. This is pre, right? Globemaster, so C-17. And um, so we flew on those if we needed military air, like if we were going to Iran or into the Middle East, things like that. Uh, and uh, we had our official passports. Um, and so um, most of the time, uh, if it was a small trip, like a vice presidential trip where there's only two or three of us, commercial air, the rest of the time, we're loading lots of gear onto a C-141. And sometimes we'd share that plane with like a limo that they were taking overseas with them, the Secret Service. So, yeah. The, the list of presidents that you uh, managed to work for, obviously you said Nixon, Ford, uh, Carter, and uh, President-elect Reagan. Did you ever get to meet them personally and talk to them? Oh, absolutely. So with uh, President Ford, he loved Vail, Colorado. I live in Colorado now, finally, yeah. after 30 years on the East Coast in D.C. area, up and down the, you know, Fort Bragg and McDill, things like that. So, um, yeah, I got to meet him, got to make him a drink one night uh, after skiing and things like that. And, and uh, yeah, he he um, he Vice President Rockefeller. Um, then, then uh, President Carter a little bit, but uh, Vice President Mondale, very nice people. Their staff usually nice unless they're under pressure. Pressure, and then they were pretty crazy, and you have to hop, run around a bit. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was very nice, and, and nice to see that in, in those cases they were real people, right? 
you know, sometimes in America as a young kid, you're putting the president up on the pedestal. He's the leader of the country. And then you get to find out that he, he likes a little bourbon in the evening and, uh, you know, uh, things like that. And, and uh, they become real people. And it's real nice um, that way. Does that make you see uh, politics and politicians differently uh, in today's world because you've had that experience? I would say so. It, it, I don't think I could have gone through that experience uh, without having my my view, you know, my glasses colored a little bit. Um, certainly the president, I give them uh, benefit of the doubt, right, being uh, commander in chief and all the things that they're involved in. Um, you know, you've got a whole national security staff working all the issues, you know, that might impact or be of importance, you know, uh, to the United States, plus the State Department, plus all these other agencies. So it really is uh, uh, probably the world's most interesting and one of the hardest jobs is would be PM in your case or president here in the States, right? Would you feel the today's ability to see the media in the palm of your hand with smartphones, social media. Do you feel that that has perhaps uh, changed the way people perceive uh, the president of the United States? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so much more transparency, uh, right? Uh, when we just had, you know, newspapers and two or three, you know, local TV stations, you know, back home, things like that. There was, uh, you know, the press, secretary had um, uh, more, uh, I think, control of the messaging. By the way, the, the press, where the press secretary talks and stands in the United States and where all the journalists sit, that used, they call it the press pool, but it used to actually be a swimming pool back oh. in Pres LBJ's, President Johnson's time, right, during Vietnam and stuff like that. So he used to love... Uh, in the pool in the evening, evidently. But uh, so, yeah, I think the messaging and, and, you know, now now we have so much competing dis, disinformation, if you want to call it that, you know, things like that. People can put out their point of view immediately. Uh, so it's a very different dynamic than, than back in the early 70s and 80s, I believe. Um. Considering all that time that you did the communication work and working with so many presidents, what's your fondest memory of that time? Uh, one of them is uh, skiing with President Ford and Vail. Uh, I used to have to carry, I didn't work with military gear a lot, but in Vail, I carried a military old uh, like squad team, you know, company size radio on my back and, and would, you know, would ski around and sort of stay in the background and, and, uh, Try not to try to try not to run over the president when he fell down because I had just learned how to ski when I got there. So I was not a pro skier and I'm just trying to stay away. Uh, luckily, we had some pro skiers on, on the Secret Service detail. But uh, yeah, so that was a, that was a great time. And then um, fishing up in the, uh, the Virginia mountains, fly fishing and stuff with Vice President Mondale, some really nice, more relaxing times. That sounds like good times. Um, you resigned in 1980 from that position. What made you have that decision to walk away from that? Yeah, by the 1980, I switched over to become a technical security specialist at the Secret Service. And it was very easy transfer, right, being essentially providing communications for the Secret Service team to become part of the team. 
uh, with my technical background and such and, and, and getting to learn more about IEDs and EOD, you know, explosive ordnance detail kind of work, stuff like that. Um, but the campaign year was uh, 1980 was was long, very long. We worked so long, so hard that we couldn't get paid any more money. We were essentially working for meals, you know, at the time. It, uh, and I just wanted to take a break. And I was a, a skydiver, so what better place to take a break than down in Florida? And after taking a break, I thought, yeah, I think I like it down here. The, the pace is quite a bit lower here in in, in Florida. And, and um, so, yeah, I sent in my paper on a uh, uh, early version of uh, uh, a uh, fax machine and uh, uh, just got into got into just sort of basic alarms video work and stuff in Florida and then got a job with the Department of Energy. So it didn't take long to get another uh, decent job and, and uh, start enjoying Florida down there. So, um, so you, you took the position uh, with GE uh, Nuclear Weapons Facility. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. And the GE sent you to school starting on your path uh, for networks and security. What was it like working at the nuclear weapons facility? Well, it was funny. During the interview, they said, by the way, we've got guards that run around with pistols and MP5s and things like that. And right in the middle of uh, the interview, uh, all of a sudden, an alarm went off. The steel barricades are out in the hallways and stuff like that. And this person's getting a little flustered and I'm like, oh, guns, Yahoo. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, okay, you're good. <laughs> you got the job. So uh, yeah, it was a bit different. I didn't realize that all my security clearances from the DOD and the Secret Service in, in America, they don't transfer over to uh, the Department of Energy. And uh, so they had me as a, a red badge that they would have to uh, escort into the building, into the secure part of the building all the time. And finally, the security officers like, you know, we're really tired of escorting you around here. I'm, you're not going to do anything bad, right? I'm like, of course not. I like this job. And he just signs me in and I end up with my badge and I start walking in every day. So it was a, it was a good time. I learned a lot. Uh, they they uh, They just had a brand new project to move the alarm system from an old you know, wire to every door and a wire to every window kind of idea to having a digital backbone. And that's when I got sent to computer school. And uh, from radios to computers was was a pretty easy jump. I'm no programmer. I'm not going to program. I'm not going to hack into your system. But uh, understanding networks, how to set up networks for computers to connect into, it all started there. And I was very lucky to get that position. I had no idea when, when I got that position, that that contract was in play to, to do all that work. And yeah. Uh, yeah, once again, bit of a golden horseshoe, so. Absolutely. Um, six years later in uh, 86, you were awarded your Green Beret. How did you get from working at a weapons facility to suddenly becoming special forces? Well, it's, it was uh, what you would call the TAA route, the, the TA route in, in the UK. So. Uh, in the United States, we have the National Guard, and every state has a National Guard uh, of some level. Uh, plus, then we have a reserve uh, a system in the United States. And so uh, 
in Florida, there was a unit of the 20th Special Forces, and it was like, ooh, more fun. Let's see, they jump out of airplanes. I like skydiving, things like that. And so um, I went and I was focused on becoming a medic. But when they found out I was good with radios, I sort of got stuck, stuck with the radio uh, until I uh, kicked in clawed and got to weapons school. So it was through a National Guard process where we would go to the active duty schools uh, for special forces at the time. Uh, there were some shorter courses like my Jump master course uh, was not not at Fort Bragg or Fort Benning, two of the major places that happens. It was it was uh, down in Alabama, and uh, it was to all the regulations, but it was just an what they called an exported school. So I got my jump master wings there, uh, kind of thing. So went through that, and uh, yeah, after after wanting to be a medic and, and getting close to going to medic school. Then they switched me over, and, and and so I spent a little time bouncing around because of MOS, and them wanting to change me. Uh, otherwise, uh, might have had my uh, green beret a little bit sooner. But uh, yeah, that was a proud day. How do you compare the physical challenge to the mental challenge of becoming a green beret on uh, a reservist sort of level, on a on a home guard sort of level? Well, it, I think um, certainly at the schools, there's no, uh, especially nowadays with the, the uh, initial uh, course that you go through, SAS, um, SAFS, something like that. But the, uh, there's no quarter given. It doesn't matter if you're active duty or reservist or if you're, you can sign, I believe you can still sign a contract called an 18 x-ray contract that'll let you go into to the pipeline. And if you make it through, then you can be assigned active duty or to a National Guard unit uh, directly from having no experience whatsoever. Because normally to get into uh, special forces, you have to be on your second enlistment, you know, and, and have some experience behind you. Um, but there were, at the schools, there was no quarter given, didn't matter, you know, active duty or not. Um, and love the challenge so you've got a daytime job but you've got to find the time to stay fit um, the neat thing about the national guard units is that uh, you end up with policemen electricians plumbers right uh, people that know how to build a house things like that and so early on in my days like um, i didn't get to go with the company but the company went down to el salvador and built a schoolhouse and some other facilities soccer field things like that so we didn't need the engineers because we had so many construction people that were right, part of the unit. Uh, and uh, we had uh, police detectives from Baltimore, Maryland and things like that when I moved up to Maryland. So we had all kinds of trades, you know, Tampa policemen down in Tampa. Um, and so I thought it, it made for uh, an interesting mix, right? Being able to be, have that flexibility to do different things Right. Um, sometimes you're able to get trained at the full up school, like in another MOS. Like so even though I was considered a radio guy, I got to go to the weapons school. But oftentimes you're picking that up on the job. Right. You're at the company facility and you like guns. And so it's like, OK, come on over here. Let's do a, show you how to how to take care of this pistol or M60 machine gun, things like that. So uh, I thought. I thought it worked out well. I got into uh, 
triathlons. We didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't have boxes to go in and, and to, to throw gyms, you know, weights around to get up on rings and things like that. So our workouts were a little bit different, but that usually wasn't a problem for us. We actually, a lot of the active duty guys thought that we had more time to get in better shape than they did with all the just everyday work of being in the army, you know, things to do. Um, we were lucky when I got to Maryland that our, our uh, one star in charge of the army guard in Maryland, Steve Blum was former special forces. So I uh, ended up on the halo team and ended up as the acting team sergeant. So when we wanted to jump, I could borrow his airplane and or his Blackhawk and get a truckload of halo rigs out of West Virginia, the, the 19th group team out of there. And uh, we would jump all day and have a barbecue and stuff like that. You know, training, training. How did you find it balancing your full-time job and being a part of the National Guard to such a level? Yeah, it, well, when we started getting computers and having to do our training plans on computers, it's like, oh, Steve's a computer guy here. Let's do, do the company training plan. I'm like, no, I'm doing the team training plan. I don't need to do everybody else's. But yeah, it you because we would we would normally train at least three days a week and then have meet 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 with each other and talk planning and stuff during the month. So you the whole idea of being a weekend warrior might have been true for some units, but we were more like week warriors during the month. Uh, and meeting and or planning or getting together and working out or, or whatever, uh, it, it, it took more and more of our time, especially as you went up in rank and became a team sergeant or things like that. If you're one of the officers in the unit, you know, you had to go to other meetings. Plus, you had to do things in the state of Maryland, uh, for example. So it could become a very serious part-time job um, on top of your regular job. Um, depending on what position you're in and stuff like that, especially company commander, things like that. So, What advice would you give to somebody that's uh, perhaps considering joining the reserves or has just joined the reserves? What advice would you give them to a healthy balance between work life, family life and military life? True. Healthy balance. You know, that, that idea that you can keep balance um, is sort of odd to me because it, it, you, you end up, or in my case, maybe it's because my level of OCD or my, my level of focus, it's like, I, I'm switching focus, right? I'm, I'm switching my contacts from, okay, I'm doing my work here. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what do I have to do here? And then about it, then I switch focus. Right. And so I don't, I don't really believe in work life Work-life balance is, for me, is like context switching and making sure you're present when you're doing whatever you're focused on. So if it's family time, I'm focused on that. You know, not that something doesn't happen or one of the guys is in a, you know, dropped his motorcycle, won't be around next weekend, that kind of thing. But I, I, I give everything I have and want to be present in the moment when I'm doing that thing. And I think that's the value you can give, especially your family is when you have the chance to be with them, be there, be present, be focused. And they'll remember that a lot more than you're just hanging around in the background on your phone, doing part of this job and part of that job kind of thing. That makes sense. Um, I'm presuming during this time, uh, you were 
perhaps deployed? Um, if you were, what sort of uh, areas of operation was that? Was that counter-drug? Was that anti-insurgents? Uh, and how did you feel the first time being a National Guard going out on deployment? Yeah, so the... Um... The area of operations for the 20th Special Forces changed. We were tied to 10th Special Forces, the European focus group that had been in Germany and based in Germany and such. They're now in Fort Carson just down the road. But uh, um, we switched over uh, from like Northern Africa doing things there and in Europe to um, seventh to set, uh, augmenting seven Special Forces in South, uh, South America. And um, so, so the, like, I remember the first time going down to uh, Colombia and the Lanceros School and Tolomati and stuff like that. And uh, being back out on the road again after being in Waka, uh, but this time, you know, we're in individual, two or three of us would be put in a house and they split the team up for security. And we're in Bogota and I was sleeping on the couch when this automatic weapons gunfire starts right down the street, you know, and I'm like rolling off the couch, grabbing my Beretta, a pistol, which I still hate to this day. Just throw <laughs> that in there. Not just my hands, you know, I just not good for me. But anyway, um, that's like, wow, you know, this is, this is not, you know, this is not weekend warrior stuff. This is the real thing. Not that these people are, the, the cartels are, are actively coming after us, but, but, you know, there's, there's, cartels, there's crime, and, and it's, not, it's different than being in Tampa or in Baltimore, for example, right? You're, you've got more crime. Everybody's got somebody out in front of their house with a shotgun or a rifle giving family protection. So you sort of sense that level of, of threat and maybe why it's not directed at you, you know, you got to be paying attention. So a little bit of an eye opener and uh, sort of tighten the team up, that kind of thing. And then off we went down to Tolomati and, and did our training and stuff. And um, that was that was very rewarding. I made some good friendships down there. And uh, the uh, unfortunately, like most of our partner countries, they get a lot of equipment. They didn't get much training. So they were the Halo team down there was given this Halo team was given all this new equipment. And all the manuals are in, you know, in American, in English, and not American, English. And uh, so I'm, I'm using my very poor Spanish to try and translate and make sure that like altimeters are working and set right. So they, you know, open their parachute before the ground comes up and things like simple things like that. So it was it uh, it was a good time. Um, obviously, we might have some non-military personnel watching this. Um, Halo being high altitude, low opening. Uh, do you want to just explain some of the different variations? Because you've got Halo and Hey Ho when it comes to parachuting onto target. Sure. A lot of the videos you see of uh, the 82nd Airborne or Airborne units out of Canada or the UK or things like that, you've got round or roundish. The parachutes aren't real round anymore. They're sort of squarely round. <laughs> it's sort of strange. Uh, right. So, so uh, you know, that's what we call a static line jump. It's got that yellow cord you see as they run out the airplane, they're handing to somebody and that's pulling all the parachute gear out. Uh, a halo jump, high altitude, low opening, uh, your uh, 
let's say, leaving the plane at 10,000 feet with free fall rig. So there's much more training involved, another level of training involved to get to that. It's very analogous to uh, sports skydiving. The gear is bigger, heavier, bulkier because we carry some really crazy loads and people jumping out with big boxes and barrels full of stuff. But um, uh, very analogous to skydiving. So let's say you leave the airplane at 10,000 feet, you open your parachute between 2,000 and 1,500 or whatever you need so that you, altitude you need so you can glide into the target area, your landing zone. And then, hey ho, uh, everybody thinks, oh, this would be exciting. This is going to be fun. You sit in a saddle at altitude and freeze while you're using your panel to guide you or GPS nowadays and guide you in. So you jump high, say, 25,000 feet and you open it 20 or even higher so that you can get seven to 10 miles of glide ratio to come into a landing zone covertly, uh, you know, because the, the airplane can stand off, be off out of the area. You can jump out and then depending on the winds and all kinds of fun factors, you can glide into the target area. So three very interesting um, methods of, of infiltration. Um, of course, you've got then small aircraft that can land, you've got helicopters. So there's many ways to get there. And it's funny because I used to, being on a halo team or a scuba team in special forces, you get a little cocky and it's like, guys, you know, we're just walking when we get there, right? This is all fun, you know, but we're still walking and we're still uh, essentially infantrymen when we get to get to where we're going. So uh, make sure, you know, your head's in the right space. But uh, yeah, so I loved it. I uh, I spent a lot of time skydiving and stuff. So. Um, so you just mentioned there, making sure that your head's in the right space. Obviously, with being a National Guard unit, you've done your, your counter-drug operation, perhaps Columbia against cartel. You're suddenly going home to your daytime job. At what point do you allow yourself to comprehend what you've just been through at what point do you start to um mentally compart everything that has just happened well i think um unlike unlike um a lot of soldiers over the last 20 years that went away for six or nine months right when you go away for that period of time into an actual war zone right your head's got to be in the right space you got to be focused on that job make sure you're present in the moment all the time it's you know it's a life safety issue at that point um that um coming home from that is a whole lot different than even us being gone for a month uh you come back and one of the nice things about being deployed is a lot of the everyday sort of grind or whatever you might call it this the stuff that really doesn't matter but just keeps hitting and bombarding you every day gets stripped away right you're with your team you're focused you're downrange it's about each other's safety um and so you know you're not you're not worried about picking the kids up from school or paying a bill those kind of things you might have that in the back of your mind when you're in a fob or something or at a base you know making sure your wife and family's okay but you're really focused with your team and on your mission. So it, I think because we're, we're part-time, part-timers, having that, that ability to come back was a bit easier. 
certainly, certainly in those days, um, coming back, um, you know, and, and even, even at the site, like, um, decompressing on the way back or stopping in Panama on the way back and having an evening at, in, in Panama city or something like that, it gives you a chance to, to decompress and then start to think about all that stuff again about real life, right? Cause you're going to go back to the real world. Um, it's important. Um, I think that being able to, once again, to take that switch context. Okay. I'm now, I'm now at XYZ airbase. I'm getting on the C5A or the C17, right? Heading the game. We're headed out. It's context switch. When you come back, I think the, the, the people who have that ability, that maturity to do that are the ones that, that survived the, be, uh, the best on an emotional standpoint, uh, right? Because it's just the reality of life, of one, one life versus the other. So Fascinating. Um, so you retired um, as acting team sergeant uh, for ODA. Um, yeah. Obviously, acting team sergeant, you're in a position of leadership. What would be your definition of a good leader in that role? <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think you've really and and you see this in in people that end up in special forces. They they tend to be um, in in a lot of cases people who are really good at interacting with people and. Um, I mean, we could spend right hours talking about leadership, of course, yeah. but um, you really, you know, you're on a team and it's, you know, we could joke about the A team in the old TV movie, you know, things like that. But you're you're with 11 other people on a, on a U.S. Army Special Forces team who are really focused on the being the best they can at their job and what they do. Right. So. Um, Sometimes you get, you know, people fresh out of the schools, right? And they've got to learn, you've got to help them learn the difference between what goes on in school, what you get tested on and what goes on in the real world. But for the most part, <coughs> excuse me, you're, you're actually managing, you know, often, you know, 11 other alpha type personalities, right? And, and keep, keep keeping them focused and, and, and on mission and things like that. And the nice thing is, is that, um, when you've got been on a team for a while, and you've probably seen this yourself, when you've got a team that's coalesced, there's not a lot of things that, you know, somebody may be, a, be the knucklehead of the day, right? You've got to bring them back in and, okay, party's over or whatever. But when a team coalesces like that, uh, you don't, you know, the team just knows what needs to be done. You know, you're in a, you're getting ready to leave. They know that, okay, we've got this mission. We need to take this gear. They're getting their gear ready. You know, you're not, you might spot check a new person, but you know, your, your 40 year old uh, heavy weapons sergeant, you're not having to spot check them a whole lot. It's more like, how you doing? Do you need anything? So you become a, you become a, a leader servant really, I think is, is where you need to be. So you've got the responsibility, you know, you're with the head shed with the captain or, or nowadays the warrant officer, you're making sure you got to make sure all the paperwork's right before we go anywhere nowadays. Um, I, I joke that, that wars are, are designed in PowerPoint, right? And then we watch them unfold on a radio and, and, and predator videos, things like that. So 
being a servant leader is the place to be because I never thought of myself as the smartest guy on the team. Uh, there were a lot of things about what the other guys did that I didn't know. Uh, you know, some of the, 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 the training the medics get and, and uh, you know, some of the, uh, the, the full-time intelligence sergeant, things like that. So um, yeah, being that leader servant, helping make sure things are moving in the right way, helping ensure that roadblocks are taken out of the way. Very similar to what you need to be a decent leader in the, in the, in the, in the civilian space too, right? Uh, you can be a leader and bark out a bunch of stuff and yeah, people will do it because they have to do it, but that's not, that's not leadership, right? That's just, that's what I call management, you know? Um, and so I've always stayed away from the management ideals uh, and focused on leadership. Uh, so, yeah. How did you feel, um, you know, leaving that team environment? Um, I know it's National Guard, but still you've got that, that brotherhood. You've had all that time together training. You've been deployed. How did it feel for you leaving that environment? Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a sad day, but in, in my case, I was always buoyed by my spirits always up because I was in the industri military industrial complex. So I was building systems and doing things to support commands and to support the warfighter and intelligence gatherers uh, until I just until I just retired on June 30th, this last June 30th. So I was always in the space doing something for the warfighter. And uh, so that that was good. And. Um, I could have, I could have stayed a few more years. Of course, I had no idea retiring in, in 2000, what would happen in 2001. Um, and I watched with, uh, trepidation and then, uh, admiration as my team went downrange three times, um, you know, and, and, uh, did a good job and things like that. So, um, yeah, a little bit, yeah, there's always, a, there's always a loss. But I'm always looking forward. So uh, there was something good there. How did you feel not being with your team when they went downrange? Uh, that that sucked for a while. And especially when, and it wasn't my team, but when the company suffered its first loss, its, its battle casualty. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had, I had some remorse. And um, uh, whether they call it survivor's remorse or whatever like that, but uh, to think about, you know, I, you know, I know my, my being there would not have changed the fact of what happened. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's tough when you leave a team that a group of, of guys that you spent a lot of time with, as you're alluding to, and then you leave, um, you know, I've, I've talked about that some because I knew a lot of uh uh, being being in the army in the seven, early seventies, I knew a lot of uh, people who had come out of active duty from Vietnam and things like that. Special forces guys, uh, rangers, long range patrol guys, LERPs, and uh, yeah, they felt they felt a lot of angst around leaving their teammates, right, and and uh, surviving when some of them didn't after they left. So I understand. Um, obviously, said you you left the National Guard, but you carried on your your full time job, um, and you were working with the NSA. Um, so you were still heavily involved. What sort of um, 
communications and sort of technological issues were you dealing with at that time with the NSA? Yeah, well, well, one of them was what we call public key encryption. So, right, how do we start doing things? Because back in the 70s and the 80s, if you wanted to encrypt a, a telephone line or a communications line, you had a big box, right? And you had to program the box with the new keys. Or as a radio guy, we had this little device, little small device, but we carried literally a tape, a reel of tape, that had little cuts in it that you had to pull through it. And that would be your encryption key. So, and or we even had pads that had old codes on them, just like World War II, one-time pads. So how did we start to automate that and digitize that? So that was one thing. And then over time, I became focused on this area, this niche area of networking called cross-domain. So if you're a warfighter and you see something and you send in a SIP report, that SIP rep could automatically flow from an unclassified network or secret up to top secret. So how do you automate that, but keep the bad guys out, right? We, 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 we want to make sure the bad guys, we know they're inside the unclassed network. They've broken into the unclassed, but how do we keep them out of the secret and the top secret? And so working with NSA and others, uh, three-letter agencies, and then you know the DOD in general, um, how do we build these systems and secure them so they can make these very risky, high-profile connections? But we need those. You need to be able to send information up so people can, uh, in intelligence can assess it, understand it, but they need to send you information back down. So oftentimes intelligence, like there are three-letter agencies, they don't even operate at secret. They operate only at top secret, right? Because of the nature of what they do. So how do we get that data back down to the warfighter? And that became my focus was how do we digitize, automate that? So you're not having to like, right? In the old days, we had memory sticks until we found memory sticks in the in the bazaar in the middle of Afghanistan. And, and people thought memory sticks or finally thought there might be a bad thing, right? Um, <laughs> Actually, the Stuxnet attack on Iran was a memory stick that, yeah, it was introduced to be a memory stick. So uh, at least that's one story. <laughs> but uh, um, so how do you do that without having to uh, burn a CD and then walk it over to the other network and connect it in? How do you go from three or four computers on your desk or under your desk with a monitor and a switch? How do you go to just one device that can automatically make those connections for you? So that became a focus of mine. And uh, a system that I helped design is on, on like over 400,000 desktops um, wow. in, the, in the US and, and the NATO, our Five Eyes partners make use of the system, um, right? So when we have at, at CENTCOM, for example, we, when I was there, we had 22 partner countries. Some of them we shared secret data with. It's called secret releasable. So how do we do that in a more automated way, but it's also higher assurance, much higher protection, all right? Uh, so like when we design the desktop system, you can't cut and paste, you can't drag or drop. You've got to use a different system to go from network A to B, like yeah. you, the terms in the UK or B to A, you know, things like that. So. Those kind of systems became what I focused on because I thought it was important. That information sharing can save lives, right? It can make sure you're not wasting time on a, the wrong target. Of course, 
like like a blue force tracker it can make sure we're not shooting into the wrong areas where our guys are so a lot of that information sharing was is where i focused and it became essentially sort of my life's work uh, on the on the civilian side so that's that's why i was able to to switch over and still feel that pride knowing that systems i built not only to help move that data but also um uh, catch insider uh, threat guys in, insider people um, gave me that pride to carry on. Yeah, so even though you weren't uh, boots on the ground with the rest of your regiment, you were still saving warfighters' lives with the work you were doing. That's absolutely brilliant, brilliant. Um, yeah. As you said, you retired uh, earlier this year um, and you published your first book on June 14th, um, Shadow Tear. What inspired you to become uh, a novelist and what was the inspiration behind your first book? Yeah, so um, the inciting event, as we call it, uh, the idea for the book actually uh, was an incident from way back in 1993. And um, I'm very visual and I think, and I was actually taught how to uh, write proposals to the government by using a thing called a storyboard. And sometimes you see pictures of this, like when they did the Star Wars movies, they draw a picture of a scene and then they write out some notes and that's yeah. called a storyboard. And they used to have those all over like for Star Wars. You can even buy some of those now. Um, that that idea, that visualization of this book, I, I've been playing for, for since 93, like just get a bunch of pictures on a PowerPoint or or write some notes or do a chart this event happens and then this happens, you know, and next thing you know, it looks like some graph from some engineer in that case, you know, whatever. But uh, uh, in 2019, my wife's like, why don't you just sit down and read? So between the Thanksgiving and, and uh, Christmas, was it the Thanksgiving break? I think it was here in the United States. I just started writing just making up a story, but using that event to, to focus around. And so that's that's how I got to the story. It took me about six months to write the first version, complete trash, but <laughs> we, we always talk about oh, writing is always rewriting. So your first version is, is just getting the idea out. And there's holes and things that are like, where's the ending or how did that end out? And so I did that and I got on to a uh, mentorship with a, uh, a very well-known best-selling writer down in Colorado Springs. And I got a mentorship with him for six months where he really focused my writing. Cause I, I didn't pay attention in English in high school. I don't know where commas go, you know, often I just had uh, my second book in the series uh, editor. Uh, he said, you know, it's funny how many English versions of words you use, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I think I got corrupted when I lived in the UK. Uh, but uh, he's like, no matter, we'll straighten that all out. So, um, yeah, it took me about six months to write the first version of the story. And then I had to spend essentially another year, better part of a year, closing it up and making it tight. Right. Um, the first version of the, 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 the first finished version of the book I had actually had um Lance and his parents walking right into the restaurant where the gunfight starts where his mother gets killed and um my my publisher's like 
you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt if we learned a little bit about Lance before you start with the gunfight. Because <laughs> nobody knows who he is and why there's this gunfight going on, you know? It's like, hey, it's the cartels. What reason do you need? Let's shoot, you know? But uh, so that's, that's where some of those earlier chapters came in and things like that. And so I have, because of my range of experience, I've been very lucky to have this broad range of experience and know enough about technology and, and other things like that that I was able to, you know, I have a, and a fertile imagination that I can, I can put together a story like this. My hardest problem was I put the story in, in, in 89. And so 1989, I had to go back and go, oh, wait a minute. We didn't have that rifle. We didn't have that pistol. Well, you know, the radios looked like this and we had big clunky things. So, uh, but it, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it was also helped me let go of the event. So, yeah. Um, yeah, because the inciting event, somebody actually died in Mexico. And so um, that that uh, also was sort of therapeutic for me to, to write the book in, in, in a lot of ways. But then I started to have fun writing and now, now I really enjoy it. So that was one of the things I was going to ask you is, was it um, a form of therapy to to get that moment of your life? on paper so you can almost release it from your mind i mean i've, I've spoken to james Rassone, dan hampton uh, and wes bryant about the way they've used writing as almost a, a form of therapy for an event that might have happened absolutely and at the same time at the same time i've used other um modalities i for example there's we uh one time there was this group that I actually took one of my uniforms and we cut my uniform up. And this is an old jungle uniform. US Army jungle uniform, cut it up and used, made, made paper out of that material. And on that material, I have a tribute to a friend that didn't make it back from Afghanistan. And so, uh, yeah, there are a lot of modalities, different ways to do that, but writing, and you don't have to be a good writer, just start writing. Right. There's a, a lot of, of organizations that help veteran writers. And uh, yeah, it can be a good way to 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 let it go in and actually, um, you know, turn it into to something valuable. You can set it down, you know, as as a legacy to your friend or friends or other things like that. Right. So do you feel that uh, U.S. veterans have a better chance of having these opportunities i know a few uh, british veterans predominantly special forces that have had opportunities um obviously uh, jason fox christian craighead uh, nims and dahl they've had um you know moderate success after coming out of such special forces branches but when it comes to um i, I don't want to say ordinary uh, service personnel but not such higher tiers do you feel that america does it better than other countries i often look around and don't think we're doing it better at all you know right. there are plenty of things i mean we're still fighting to to get people who have inhaled very bad pollutants around burn pits and things getting them some benefits and things all the years we fought for a for vietnam veterans who were exposed to agent orange i've got a uh, 101st Screaming Eagles veteran here, Larry, who, great friend, but, but you know, he's really infirm because of Agent Orange. So I don't think we, we do it better. Uh, we're 
I think we've certainly, we've got a lot more veteran associations and people thinking about it, right? And, and uh, there's like a billion dollar, billion dollar veterans hospital down the street from me that's really beautiful, it was a terrible, terrible building project, cost way too much, but it's a really nice institution. So, you know, if we can get veterans thinking about use everything you can, find every avenue, right? Get that, get the education or the trade education you want if you want to become a plumber or a mechanic, whatever. Use everything you can. Uh, that was one of the thoughts I had when I joined was that I don't want to go to college now, but I will later, and this will give me money for it. Uh, you know, why? Well, hopefully I'm seeing the world, right? And I did use that. I didn't finish college for 17 years until I, right, um, until I was at McDill Air Force Base 17 years later, and it was just real easy after work to go to school, right, right there on base. So if you're a veteran, and it doesn't really matter what country you're in, just find out everything you can about all the opportunities and make use of everything and push you got to be your own advocate, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to advocate for you like you will. So, That's some really good advice. Um, so you, you have two charities that you're quite fond of, uh, Special Operations Warrior Foundations and Veterans to Farmers. Uh, do you want to give us a, a couple of minutes and explain what those charities do? Yeah, well, uh, the, the Special Operations Warrior Fund Foundation, I always end up calling it fun, but I really like them because they focus on the survivors of uh, special operations folks who, who didn't make it back. And they have a very, um, very high level of every dollar goes to the people they're supporting. And one of the great things they're able to do is help people, the kids of fallen veterans, uh, fallen soldiers get into college and get into school. And they're always, able to show you know success these three kids just finished school this one just finished school and I think that's that's awesome right because I can't imagine what it's like losing a family member right like like your father and then you know trying to carry on so that's that's wonderful uh the vets to farmers is a new one and it's here in Colorado and it's literally about farming whether whether it's organic um and what it really takes to do more than actually, you know, just have a home garden kind of idea, right? And so I'm just starting to get involved with them. Uh, I've got a friend that takes advantage of it. Uh, and he's got some ideas about going home uh, back up to Maine and doing some other things. They've even got ideas about how to farm uh, different kinds of seafood and, 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 you know, make the cages so that you can grow oysters and mussels and all kinds of stuff. So. A lot of good stuff going on, and I love the idea. Uh, our farming base is getting so commercial that the idea of growing and, and having more farming and people interested in farming in the United States is important to me. As much grain as we produce, as much everything as we produce, uh, you know, I see this erosion of that base of people going into and 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 working the struggle to farm the land. So. I think it's also, once again, it can be very meditative. It can be very good for a veteran to slow down and do something with their hands and get it dirty. I know I love it. My wife, not so much. She teaches cooking. Dirty hands is not a good thing. Me, I love having my hands in the dirt um, and, and such. So 
really happy to be uh, aligned with these two uh, great organizations. Um, if, if I could just leave you with two questions. The first one is, is there anything uh, throughout your esteemed career, your, your service, that you would change? Or is there something that you would have learned in hindsight that you would take back and tell your younger self? And secondly, what does the future hold for yourself, Steve? Yeah. Boy, there's a lot of stuff I'd tell my younger <laughs> self. But um, the um, one of the one of the things that I think uh, we tend to tell ourselves stories about, you know, how you know the macho side of of what we do and the physicality side of what we do, and then we saw the the people in in, in Afghanistan and Iraq saw the value of having females. You know, not on the A team, not in SASF, but as add-ons and the value of that. I have a good friend, writer, Ama Adair. She was the first female deployed with Navy SEALs. And wow. she puts a and she as as a counterintelligence intelligence warrant officer, she puts some bad guys in the dirt. And and she's awesome. And so I think I think we're late to the game about that integration where it makes sense of of that that female perspective. And when you're trying to win, and this is a very old Vietnam kind of saying, but when you're trying to win hearts and minds yeah. and you're in an area, you're not just doing your nightly, you know, um, HTV, uh, you know, missions, things like that. If you're in an area trying to help like a normal special forces team, right? Training the locals and trying to win hearts and minds. I think women are, women are important part of that, right? Because they're part of every fabric, even if they're lower on the on the chain than men are in different areas of the world. That's number one. Number two, uh, what would I tell my younger self is um, that uh, next time do this, do, I, one of the best things I did was I raised my hand and volunteered for everything because I wanted it didn't matter if it was is cleaning toilets or if it was working in the chow hall. I raised my hand because I wanted all these different experiences. And so I would say, continue on with that idea. 99% of the time it worked out. So like when I got caught for working in the chow hall, I ended up cooking because I knew how to cook. Uh, I didn't have to clean a single pot or pan. It was lovely. But uh, um, so uh, continue to volunteer and look for new opportunities. Um, is something that I focus on. And um, so that has worked for me a lot. What's what's next for me is to continue writing. So I've got the second Shadow Tear book yep. uh, done, essentially. I'm just looking at a few little things left before I send it to the publisher. And then, so I'm gonna continue writing, working with the charities uh, and uh, trying to in, in, enjoy life uh, you know, um, and not not be on Zoom all day, right? <laughs> leading leading my software team, right? Uh, like I was up until June. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy life a little bit more. My wife and I, she uh, went with me on a trip uh, to the UK and Scotland, and she definitely she'd never been before. She wants to go back, and I I know why. I love it over there too. It's it's sure. the family homeland, of course, and and. Uh, that kind of thing. But uh, so we'll do a little travel. 
and uh, enjoy life. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time coming on the show. I hope you've uh, enjoyed your time in the cage. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to your stories. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure. Thank you. And as a, as a 18B weapons sergeant, I appreciate what's over your right shoulder. <laughs> Especially that top one up there. You carry on with that. I, I, I love it. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Oh, my God.